brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shanice O'Mara. And I'm Emma Keeling. Today on the podcast, we're looking at a company that has a revolutionary approach to food waste. We can take 10 container loads of fresh pineapple with all the crowns, the leaves, and the skins, all that, and get that amount of nutrition into one container. Razorites, we know we always give you lots of food for thought, but today we're actually giving you a food story which will make you think differently. Razorites, that's an awesome word. I had to figure out what you were saying there for a second. So almost a third of all food produced for human consumption is wasted every year. I was so shocked when I heard that stat. According to the UN, this amounts to 1.3 billion tonnes of food, which never makes it from the field to people's plates. Earlier in the year, our colleague Mark New from CGTN America did a story about a new startup, Treasure 8, that's used a drying technology to prolong the shelf life of food. This company found that by using a specific kind of drying technique, they can make food last longer and maintain its nutritional value. Here's our intrepid reporter, Mark New, speaking to Timothy Child, the founder and co-CEO of Treasure 8, about how his team came up with the process. We were on a path to figure out how do we get more nutrition in snacks that are available in distribution. We were making snacks alongside with Google for their Googlers and stuff like that. And then we realized we need to get really dense nutrient loads to stuff. So for us, we like that kind of a challenge. And so we basically do what we do is we, we call ourselves a little R and big D. We, you know, we find research elsewhere and we help develop and then commercialize that. Right? And we focus on the development side. So we took it and we figured out how to make it work, spent a lot of time and energy, pivoted the entire business around this core technology, which has been a wellspring for a lot of things for us. And what we've done is we've used that as a platform as our technology base to dry stuff more efficiently. The benefits of this process doesn't just extend to using food that would otherwise go to waste. There's also a strong economic argument for why this is so revolutionary. Timothy and his co-CEO Dirk Hendrickson explain it further. Um, in the beginning, uh, in the agricultural uh, and during agriculture, there's obviously a lot of uh, a lot of water use. Uh, one of the things that we can do of the water that that, that remains in the plants uh, is uh, take that water out, dehydrate it in our machines, and re- uh, reusing that water. Uh, so instead of letting it go, go to waste, reusing it. Um, so that uh, that is one. You want to add to that? Water, yeah. And also the weight is a big problem with yeah, the weight. Well, of course, you know when it, when it comes to trucks on the road uh, that need to get product from A to B, uh, the heavier or the more volume uh, volume as it is, the the, the the worse it is, right? So uh, so taking the water out, dehydrating it, makes it much easier to get it from A to B. Um, the shelf life is also improved, so it can uh, stay longer. So we don't need chilled supply chains uh, or heavy equipment to get it from uh, get it from A to B. And when you ship food, how much of the weight is often composed yeah. of water? So a good good rule of thumb to think about: we can take ten container loads of fresh pineapple with all the crowns and leaves and skins, all that, and get that amount of nutrition into one container. So you start looking about the the unit economics and then the environmental f- footprint you can do by saving instead of having having nine containers on the water or nine containers over land getting to somebody, you can get the same amount of nutrition in a smaller format. That doesn't go bad, like Dirk's saying. We're now joined by the wonderful Mark New. He's going to tell us all about his adventures with Treasure 8. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Shinny. Nice to be here. So what an interesting story. Yeah, it's um, 
I, I set about this going about doing this story. Um, I had a great interest in there's a lot of uh, sort of biotech and uh, food uh, technology going on these days. And I've covered quite a few stories about the, you know, the substitute meats, the um, uh, taking cells from meats and growing um, uh, the food in a lab. And it, it's a huge thing going on in Silicon Valley. And then I heard about this company and I really couldn't quite get a grasp on what it was. If you go to the website and the contact I was uh, talking to about um, their mission is like deploying nutrition for humanity, uh, zero hunger, good health and well-being. Uh, they have like 15 steps on their website, um, life on land, climate action. It just seemed this gigantic thing like, OK, they, they're just so theoretical that this can't possibly be something that they're that physically we can do for a good TV story and see what they're doing. But the contact person said, hey, you got to come out here. It's on Treasure Island, which I had visited before and thought, Treasure Island, that's where the World's Fair was held. Um, It's an unusual island off San Francisco where there was military waste and they were trying to clean up to make for housing. And nothing could happen there because of that. And I said, you're actually building some kind of food security company on this remote island. I've got to just go there and adventure and see and find out what it was. And so that's how the story began in my adventure going to Treasure Island. And where Treasure Eight is inside these uh, these big hangars. Mark, what does the actual process look like? Because it sounds like there's so many different parts to it. Yeah, I um, you know, I, I couldn't quite grasp what they were doing. Honestly, when I was going into the story, I just kept getting this: "Come see us and come uh, figure us out." So when I came there, it pretty much um, I thought, you know, you're drying food and taking waste, and then using it for good. So, you know, food is not going to waste, but we're drying it and preserving it. But then I kept asking, well, how how is yours different from the dried food that we have today? You know, can't anybody else just dry it? But they insisted that they're using a special technology that is a lot more efficient in the burning uh, process, and then also better in the preservation, and also faster, and that you can scale it to, to handle massive amounts. So taking that all into account, really more efficient drying and taking that waste and making use of it in a time when we have COVID and, uh, you know, supply chains and uh, people are having a hard time getting, you know, good nutrition, they're able to take that dried food, grind it up and serve it in powders or soups or smoothies or whatever. So you get that nutrition because he, he made an interesting point, Timothy, uh, the co-CEO that in this time, you know, when food costs go up, you're going to be spending more for crappier food. <laughs> I think that was his, his words. So if they can do something taking waste and making it, uh, allowing you to put it in, uh, you know, soup kitchens or whatever, just add a little powder into that and make it more, then you're, that's what their whole idea of nutrition security. You can ship it around cheaper too because you've taken the water weight out, which is one of the big things they told me about. You ship stuff, you know, half of your shipping cost sometimes for food is water weight. So you take that out and then get the same nutrition value. But, but for example, you know, they were in my story, they were taking the, uh, the stocks. Um, a lot of stocks and things won't be used necessarily um, on farms. So there's a lot of farm waste that can be taken and they have trucks. Uh, you know, they've called these farmers. Can you send us the stuff that you're not going to use and bring it to us? So that brings up another interesting point, which I didn't even have time to get into in this story. 
was that I believe some of the stocks for kale, they're trying to complete a whole cycle where they take those stocks and then use their process to grind it up and combine it with other sort of nutrients to create biochar for the soil to make healthier soil. So they're really, really thinking long term to make this a whole food cycle, which is why they keep talking about uh, transforming the food system, which they believe is outdated today. Now you tasted, had a bit of a munch, Mark, which is not easy when you're wearing a mask. But so, what did it? What is it? What was it like? What did it taste like? <laughs> you you hit on the exact point when we were filming. It was it was like, oh my gosh, we got mask on, we got to chomp, and that was a time when everybody is really nervous about spreading things. So that was an incredible challenge that you you pointed out. But after a while, you start eating it, and then I was just really, really surprised from the very first bite, and. I've had dried mangoes, these sort of things, and uh, really there's a lot of crispy crunchiness. And they say that texture, that cellular, the the ability to hold up that structure really shows that it has a better nutritional value and that they're not changing things. I mean, they showed me um, a a beet chip uh, from theirs, and you, you just drop it and it sort of tingles. And the other ones they showed me from the regular store were more rubbery. And it had these kind of bubbles in it. So in their view, this shows how they're maintaining nutrition and they're not adding anything. They're not adding sugar or anything. And I tasted, you know, they had like 20 to 30 different types of things there, which you would never guess, you know, could be dried food. And they all tasted good. For example, they had the bell peppers. Uh, would you have a dried bell pepper? That tasted really good. Of course, things like mangoes and bananas, those were all very good tasting. They also had um, dried shiitake mushrooms, which we see in, you know, Chinese um, uh, traditional Chinese medicine quite often. So I thought immediately thought, wow, that is a great potential for all of those ingredients that you see in the Chinese medicine shops and the, the natural herbal ingredients. Because um, if anybody's into that, um, an acupuncturist or whatever or herbalist, they will often tell you that yeah, a lot of places are using these old herbs. So. The idea of having it so fresh and then unseal it and you'll hear the air go, you know, the uh, the jars pop open. So I was really impressed with the taste, the texture and the fact that they weren't adding anything. Gosh, Mark, you're making it sound absolutely delicious. But can this all be used on any kind of food? Like are there certain foods that don't fit this process? I mean, is it a one size fits all? You know, that's that's. I asked exactly that question because I think he brought up that everything they've tested, it has worked out except one. And I said, of course, tell me what that one is. He said, no, I can't tell you. So I didn't get to the answer to what what food it didn't work on. But just about everything else that we saw there, all kinds of fruits, um, all kinds of vegetables, it all worked on. So how on earth did you do this story during COVID-19? I mean, this is done, you know, in the height of when we were all worried about things. And uh, we were there trying to figure out how to, you know, put our microphones on because we had two channels and we had two guests. And then uh, I've got a mask on and they're talking and how do we get their sound properly with just me and one camera person. So yeah, that created a huge uh, burden in trying to film this. But, uh, you know, they were careful about it. Um, We had hand sanitizer there. Uh, before we tasted our things and we would take our masks off and chomp on the food. So we managed to do it. But yeah, that was a huge challenge in trying to film it while we're wearing masks. 
We like to think that food's all about being nutritious, but it's not really. It has to taste good, doesn't it? It has to fit into a cuisine. So now that this company makes this very nutritious, recycled food, and it's crunchy, which is great, like chips and crisps, I mean, how do you market it to consumers and actually get them to buy it? I ask that question many times because, you know, astronaut food and this stuff has such a bad chalky image, and they're trying to change that. Uh, They have, you know, their own products um, but I, I, d- I got the feeling that it's more of a sample for people to come in and taste it because they have their own line of like baked ap- ap- apple chips, dried apple chips and the beet chips, which all taste very good. But I, I agree with you that it's not an easy sell to to try and change that image. Uh, but in the meantime, they use it for I think one of their big clients is pet food, for example. So <laughs> I guess pets are not going to complain about what, what's in their food. But you think about it, that's a huge market, you know, for people loving their pets and wanting to make sure that they're giving them something nutritious. So I think there are other ways to build to that step. But, yes, I agree with you. Trying to market those things um, as being tastier than natural food, that's that's not going to be easy. And that that's a huge challenge. But in the meantime, I know that they are working with soup kitchens and they are definitely using powders to add to nutrition um, so that people that are, you know, these may be people could be homeless or whoever people in need are not just eating junk and they're getting something valuable. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, we watch you on the screens, but of course we never actually met. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for bringing such a fascinating story. Um, I mean, I was riveted and, and quite excited about, um, yeah, getting some rid of some of this waste. Well, actually using some of this waste, I should say. So yeah, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And that brings us to the next section of our podcast, which is called What's Exciting Us in Science This Week. Emma, you go first. Oh, that's so kind of you. And you are going to be thrilled with my story today because I'm going to talk about my cat in a science sort of way. And I felt we needed a little bit of gentle science in amongst all the climate change and the COVID stuff. And I saw this online um, on one of my favourite magazines, New Scientist. And of course, you can also buy it. I mean, in paper form, it's crazy. And it caught my eye because just before lockdown in March, we got a kitten, Frankie the Magnificent, or Frankie for short, and it's a her because, you know, we're a bit like that. If you don't have pets and you don't understand them, Dogs, they sort of gaze adoringly at you and cats just pretty much ignore you. So if you have really low self-esteem or self-worth, don't get a cat. But anyway, we're going to go on with the research. So the fleeting eye contact that cats make may explain why some autistic children develop stronger relationships with pet cats than pet dogs. This did surprise me. This research was done by Marine Grand-Georges at the University of Rennes in France. And she found that neurotypical children tended to gaze longer at their pets than children with autism did. And so one of the researchers explained it this way. So cats glance, they look away, and then they glance back again briefly. And what we see is that the child then actively seeks attention from the cat. See, this is what it's like owning a cat. You get needy. Um, But they say that could be stimulating and developing social skills that are often considered lacking in autistic people. Now, this surprised me. And it also surprised um, James Cusack, who's the CEO of UK autism research charity Autistica, because he said that many of autistic adults in the organisation prefer dogs, but autistic people are enormously diverse, so it's normal to have both dog people 
and cat people in the autism population. And the gregarious nature of dogs, you know, some of them, and it's usually the really big ones, they sort of jump up at you and slobber all over you and they get very excited. So that might seem a little bit intimidating to some autistic children who might find them a little bit unpredictable. So there you go. So maybe, oh, and I guess it's like any animal, really. You've just got to try them out on your kids. I mean, yeah, every, everybody's a sort of a cat or a dog person. I used to be a dog person, and now I'm a very needy, needy cat person. Well, that just explains a lot, Emma. <laughs> Have you noticed my change? Please, please talk to me. Please. I've definitely noticed a shift. I thought it was lockdown, but actually... It was your kitten I know, all along. I know. I have become a little bit obsessed. But anyway, it's kept me it's kept me out of trouble along with, you know, growing tomatoes. So yeah, anyway. So anyway, let's get on with your story. What have you found interesting in science this week? Well, do you know what? I always love a good biomimicry story. And biomimicry is the types of technology that have been inspired by nature. And I came across a great story where they well, let me read you the headline. This news story is all about anti-reflective coating that has been inspired by fly eyes. So the eyes of flies have actually inspired this brand new coating or material that's anti-reflective. It's really useful for the medical industry, for implants, for textiles, for contact lenses. I mean, the applications are very, very diverse, but it's a biodegradable material and, you know, flies have inspired this um, combination of molecules. And when you look at a fly's eye in a microscope, it's really complex. But actually, it's just made up of two ingredients that are really simple and cheap to source. It's made up of a protein called retinin and corneal wax. And it's quite astounding because those two ingredients are super cheap, available, and it means that we can make this biodegradable material, which is great for the environment, but it also means that, you know, these very diverse applications, such as contact lenses, will just be so much better. I mean, I wear contact lenses and you do, you do get those moments where the light is kind of bouncing off the lens in a really weird way causing like you know slight disturbances in sight and things like that and that is going to be no more thanks to this technology i could put that on my windscreen i hate that when the sun hits you know especially in the northern hemisphere it gets really low and you're completely blinded it's quite dangerous so do you think maybe we could slap a bit of that on the windscreen yeah absolutely i mean the applications are pretty much endless so that's it for another edition of Razor. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And also, if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGT in Europe and type in Razor. Emma just wants you to see pictures of her kittens. <laughs> <laughs>